0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Last week, we were talking with Mark Salter, the author of the new book, The Luckiest Man, Life with John McCain. Uh, Mark used uh, his perspective as uh, McCain's Chief of Staff to share with us just a great story of the public and the private man. We had a lot to cover. Uh, So before we talked a lot about um, Senator McCain's life uh, before he was a senator and some of when he was already a senator. In this uh, episode, we'll cover more about the 2008 campaign, Sarah Palin, uh, the current presidential campaign, the current president. So I'm delighted uh, to welcome again, Mark Salter. Welcome.
1: And when when we started talking in 2005 and 2006 about running again, when when he might have been the early front runner, he, he, he repeatedly raced with me and other advisors you know the question can can we bottle lightning twice he was skeptical
0: that that Mm. he could
1: um and you know and that was not as much fun he became the nominee it was a great honor and he was very moved by the honor and it was special to him don't get me wrong um and he's a very competitive guy he does not like to lose uh, or did not like to lose um but he um you know, it was, uh, the campaign blew up and a lot of friendships were sundered uh, in the first year. And then, you know, we sort of slugged, he slugged his way back to contention and uh, became the nominee. And then, you know, running against the guy that had captured everybody's imagination and on an even grander scale than McCain had managed to do in a Republican primary eight years earlier.
0: Do you think he was sorry he ran in 2008?
1: I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. He would never have told me if, if he had been. I don't think so. I think he thought, you know, I managed to become the nominee. And we had a window. We came out of that convention with a five-point lead. Convention bounces often disappear, but ours didn't really disappear. It was, we were probably tied. Maybe Obama was up a point or two. But we were certainly in contention when Lehman Brothers collapsed. And then there was not really anything we could do. I mean, we 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 looked a little desperate. One so party said, "Well, that you know, canceling to go back to Washington and get in the middle. of This seemed a little desperate." He said, "Well, yeah, because we were, you know, <laughs> because the market's selling off 800 points." You know the global credit system is collapsing you know uh the r- r- wrong track number in the country in the polls the right track wrong track was 88 wrong track <laughs> you know and we were no unfortunately way. saddled we were the republican running to succeed a republican so we were saddled with george bush's third term there's virtually nothing we could have done so yeah we looked a little like we were a little prone to hail mary passes i mean it's hard to come up with a let's run the ball a couple of yards
0: so what everybody always wants to ask about for the 2008 campaign um and you and i have had a lot of conversations about it over the years uh have two parts uh one they would say that mccain lost because he picked sarah palin that's not true and the other is you publicly said that you were in favor of tim plenty yeah and I wonder if you felt disappointed uh, that McCain nonetheless went with Sarah Palin. Well,
1: I, no, I, well, two things. She she didn't cost him the race. Um, uh, we we could have there was nobody we could have had on the ticket that would have made any difference after Lehman Brothers. Um, and she did animate certain Republicans or certain voters, independent voters who weren't very enthusiastic about voting for McCain. She did cost him some of the you know sort of uh, you know. Uh, Center centrist center right independence, uh, you know, uh, but kind of a wash at the end of the day. He also felt responsible for putting on the ticket. His reason was not to fire up the base or the or the sort of Trump base that we weren't, I think, really, but that we didn't comprehend existed at at the time. It was really because, um, well, first he, he wanted to put a Democrat or a former Democrat on the ticket and his staff and various senior. People in the Republican Party, national leaders of the Republican Party, prevailed on him uh, not to pick that person
0: because he couldn't have come out of the convention.
1: Well, we could have come out of it, but boy, it would have been bloody. There would have been a challenge on the floor because it, the person was Joe Lieberman, and Lieberman was pro-choice, and the party is decidedly pro-life now, and uh, and that would have been a bloody, bloody fight. And we and, and the press would have written it up as McCain comes out of his convention crippled, mm-hmm. um, and we're, we were we were we weren't. You know, it's not like we went into it with a lead, um, right? But um, and so he, uh, you know, then it, it, there were other choices. There was Mitt Romney um, uh, and Tim Pawlenty, and uh, and uh, rather late in 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 the game, one, one senior advisor uh, uh, told him, "Let's take a look at this new governor in Alaska." that she ran as a reformer. She took on the Republican establishment.
0: So she seemed maverick. She
1: seemed maverick. She was, you know, know, mom, you know, uh, um, with, uh, you know, you know, I mean, McCain didn't know her. He'd met her once, but he really didn't know her at all. But one, one, one person on our campaign who'd worked in Alaska was familiar with her and said, she's impressive. She's impressive. And, uh, um, so, uh, I was asked to go with another aide um, to meet with her and secretly in Flagstaff, and we kind of asked her a lot of policy questions and talked to her about, you know, you know, the, her responsibilities. Should she be asked to be on the ticket? And um, and then we put her on the phone with lawyers who had already been vetting her, but asked her a lot of uncomfortable questions about a lot of things and worked through the night. And then we brought her down to meet with McCain. Um, uh, She and McCain had an hour or so conversation uh, sitting at, we were in his place in Northern Arizona, which was his favorite place on earth. And he was sitting in the chairs at the bend of this creek that runs along their property, which was his favorite place to sit. And they were there an hour, hour and a half or something. And and then I and this other aide left with him to go to a, a, a room and where we sort of debated his options. And uh I, I decided I would advocate for Palency. I like and admire Governor Romney very much. But I thought if, if if he asked Governor Romney to be on the ticket that we would spend the first week or so relitigating all the issues that they had argued about in the primaries, all the attacks on each other. And I said, You know what we don't have enough time to do that. And uh and I thought uh, I, I I liked Governor Palency very much. I thought he was a very talented Politician and a good guy and uh, you know um, a nice center right guy with good v- policy views and uh, but you know it would have been greeted by a respectable pick yes and then nobody would have paid any attention to it uh, the other the other ad, you know, advocacy was for Sarah Palin who will get a ton of attention <laughs> because nobody knows who she is to start with and uh, and uh, the, you know the pre- people advocating for her thought that. She could withstand the pressure didn't know for sure but thought she could and uh she, she had some very winning ways um and uh and he would get a little the the, the the there was every election to an extent is a change election but 2008 was a change election on steroids which is why change hope and change hope and change was in every very <laughs> mailer communication mm. that the obama campaign issued um and we had to get a piece of that change message mccain had been the change candidate in 2000 we had to get a piece of it because whoever had was the biggest change on offer was going to win that election you know we had to do something and we thought okay we'll we'll put a woman on the ticket and she's a you know a newcomer but she's a you know very mavericky and a a reformer and and you know let's give it a shot and it was a gamble and, and one of the vetters told mccain uh high risk, high reward, and uh, he, he gambled. And you know, it wasn't fair to her because she wasn't ready. Uh, my argument to McCain was you, know, you would pick her at the cost of country first or the experience argument we've been making against Obama, but uh, you know, the pushback from others on the campaign was correct that you know, the experience argument doesn't mean crap in 2008 to voters, they want change. You know, and they don't care if you haven't been in government for one day. We I did not I didn't I didn't really accurately appreciate just how widely spread that sentiment is among some American voters, even people who don't normally vote until Donald Trump got elected when they picked a guy that's so transparently unqualified for the job, almost because of that fact, you know. Um but anyway, um that, and it you know, it didn't work out to anyone's great satisfaction, but uh, that's not her fault. That's ours. Mm.
0: so speaking of presidential campaigns and Trump, mm-hmm. you ran a you were part of a team running a presidential campaign. So, what do you think the Biden and Trump teams are doing as we speak? What's going on?
1: I think the Trump campaign probably lives in mortal terror of encounters with her candidates, but uh, <laughs> um, the Biden campaign is doing a pretty good job. As far as I can tell, I can't imagine how they're managing to do it because they are like so many people, uh, they're doing it remotely. I think uh, all the Trump people and true Trumping style are huddled together in a building in Northern Virginia and, uh, the Biden campaign staff are, you know, working from their homes. Uh, I don't still, yeah, I think, um, I, I haven't, I've got a few friends that work on the campaign. My college roommate is Mike Downland, his chief strategist. And, uh, I haven't talked to him in a while. He's, when I, He's busy. Well, when I send him a text, I get like literally one syllable responses. So I, don't, I try not to bother him. Um, but he uh, yeah. Although
0: you were in touch with them when you were doing the. Yeah, yeah. The, they
1: were, I, I helped organize McCain alumni for Biden. And uh, um, they were very gracious in, in
0: their time with us. So Mark, you read a lot about that Trump now controls the Republican Party that it's not the GOP, it's Trump's party. Legislators seem to be terrified of his power and, you know, relent, relent, yeah. relent. You know, you talked a little bit when you were talking about Sarah Palin about people wanting an outsider, but yeah. what was it that the Republican Party missed leading up to Trump that that created this void that allowed this man that, as you said, is totally incapable, incompetent yeah. of running the country to actually get elected.
1: Yeah. I don't know, Roxanne. Um, I, I think Trump's hold, which is somewhat of a reign of terror over other Republicans, um, will go away when he's gone. You do? Well, I think his personal hold, nobody's going to, I guarantee you, even the most slavishly sycophonic member is going to heave a sigh of relief, Republican member of Congress, not maybe not some of the Freedom Caucus knuckleheads, but uh, uh, most Republican senators I know, with a couple of exceptions, will heave a sigh of relief when that guy's gone. One, he's going to probably cost them the Senate. And two, you can see it on the news, as they're walking in the hallways, usually the pre- reporter stops them, they're pretty cheerful people, why not? It's a, you know, it's great, great job. But why it.
0: are these, why are these seemingly rational people succumbing this? way? I mean, it's inconceivable as you watch the news and Trump does one more. I think there are various, I can't. I, I, I'm just, There's not a in, an I'm not answer. Just, I'm
1: just speculating.
0: Good, they're, well go they're, ahead.
1: They're, okay, so, so some will f- fear a primary because you know the people. Oftentimes, the fringiest elements in either party—they're the ones who show up the most. They show up to every precinct committee meeting. They make themselves a real uh, their presence known. Um, uh, we 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 experienced that in Arizona. McCain always had a problem with about twenty-five percent of Republican voters, the most conservatives, and they, they you know they controlled the district. They ran everything because they showed up, and the your your chamber of commerce Republican, you know. Is not going to go didn't it's, it's show, up. show up some 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 school room to get yelled at by strangers for a half hour and every other week or something so, no um but so they they're worried that you know they get primary and the most uh energetic and, and reliable votes would be against them in a primary others i think probably think well if we work with him or somewhere and we'll let him sign big checks or whatever he does you know we can make <laughs> him 10 percent less insane um, we'll control it's not it. at the same time. Get the judges we want and the regulations cut we want and the tax cuts we want. Um, and there's you know, in some ways, that that's happened. Not they, they haven't managed to keep 10 less insane, mind you, but they got the tax cuts, the tax code they wanted, and they're getting the supreme court, justice. And, they're getting, and they're getting you know, they're getting all sorts of judges. Um, uh, so in some ways, that worked out. And I'm sure there are other models, and in a, in a few cases in the Senate, they may think. Populism is the way to go. Now, there'll be a contest, not for Trump, because he's, he's an albatross around their necks now, and they know it. It's probably going to cost him the Senate. And he's been a terrible, terrible, terrible president. Really, right there with uh, Buchanan and Andrew Johnson is maybe the worst mm. presidents we've ever had, maybe the very worst. And he's, I think, in my own opinion, a clear and present danger to this country. He is uh, an antagonist to our allies and a sycophant to our enemies, and that is dangerous business in the world we live in today. Um, And and as far as I'm concerned, we can't get him out of there fast enough. Um,
0: And, you know, Mark, on on that subject of, you know, bailing on our allies and embracing um, uh, the authoritarians out there, you know, given what that sort of role for the United States had with um, McCain, Mm -hmm. what do you think it's going to take to get that back? It's going to be... um, And and is something permanently lost? In my own
1: view, to an extent, but in a very different way, I felt the previous administration was negligent uh, overseas, but it was sort of... but there was a benevolence behind it. You know, we shouldn't like Syria. We shouldn't be dictating. You know, we shouldn't be. But but you know, the, the, our allies may grumble sometimes about the heavy hand of American leadership. But what worries them most is when that hand has completely disappeared. Yeah. And it the hand got and the, that's what's the, going the hand on. got a little loose uh, in the Obama administration. Trump is an antagonist. That's entirely different. When American leadership becomes an antagonist, yeah. to you. That's a very different thing. So the world has now had, in my opinion, eight years of um, not, not strong enough American leadership and, and four years of open hostility from the President of the United States. Another four years of Trump, the, the NATO, NATO won't exist. Uh, I think the Europeans will form their own defense uh, alliance without us. and. Uh, and it'll be Europeans, you know, figuring out how to deal with the emergence of China and uh, and the sort of. Uh, it's a
0: scary. You picture. know
1: the, the aggressiveness of uh, Putin's Russia. I mean, eventually Russia. I, I mean, it's just they have one thing to sell: gas and oil, and 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 a ton of corruption. R- Russia will. Russia's living in the twilight of its greatness, and and I. It, but China is China is else. not, and that that's a that's a major major issue we're going to have to manage and uh, <laughs> i can't think of anybody less com- less competent to do that and to rally uh, our allies in in some kind of unified approach relationship with China than Donald Trump he's utterly incapable you might as well you know you might as well ask uh, i don't know it's just a, a, a trained <laughs> monkey
0: to do it <laughs> um mark one of the things that a lot of us thought was law okay. in terms of what a president of the United States could do, Turn out, turns out to be custom. Mm-hmm. I mean, Trump pulls off one outrageous thing after another. And we go, that, that must be against the law. That must be against the law. Well,
1: Yeah, I mean, there are certain things you should litigate, but the politics they are means the litigation takes too long and the politics move on. So for instance, all those ignored subpoenas, you can go to court and try to enforce them from Congress, you know, uh, but you know, you'll be, it'll be litigated for months and years and, you know, and, you know,
0: but do you think there'll be an appetite for rolling back executive power? I mean, executive power I, I, has I, been I, I, expanded.
1: I, 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 I would hope so. And I think there, there might be a, might definitely be an appetite on the democratic side for that. But, uh, um, I think the Republicans are going to have to sort out. There will be members of the Republican Party, you know, seeking leadership positions, running for president. Are we still on? Uh, Are we on?
0: We look like we think we're on. Okay. Okay. All right. Um,
1: (laughs) Who will will try to do some some version of Trump's nativism, populism, um, uh, you know, is... uh, uh, managed trade or, you know, protectionism, uh, they'll try to do some version of it without the crazy tweets, you know, you know, and, yeah. and the, you know, the obviously insecure, you know, Childishness. Yeah. Childishness that, you know, Donald Trump, you know, exhibits so often, um, and, you know, the Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton, they'll, they'll beat up immigrants. Uh, they'll, 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 they'll make cynical arguments about, Trade relationships. They'll um, they'll uh, do do all sorts of stuff that's unpleasant, but they'll try to do it in a way that's recognizably normal and not insane. And then there'll be others who will represent something else, I think. And there'll be a battle, and it'll probably go on for more than one election. You know, there'll be a battle. I don't, you know, any party that that that, that plans to succeed by discouraging people from voting is not a party with a future. Mm, let's hope. And uh but well, you know, I I, ho- I hope I hope I hope there is a center right party with a future in this country because I'm I'm a summer center right guy and I believe in it and 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 you don't want the most progressive elements of the Democratic Party in my in my viewpoint yeah. to to take over the great Democratic Party because I think their ideas are kind of nutty at times, but uh um Having said that, um, um, I'm I'm not optimistic about the Republican Party. Demographics are against it. We can't go around (laughs) telling, you know, doing all these things to tell people, you know, we really don't like you, you know, and we're going to try to stop you from voting. And you know, we look at you as our adversaries and and exist in a country. Sixty percent of the high school seniors in the state of Arizona today are Hispanic.
0: Mm. You know.
1: They're friends they've got friends who are being deported you know you, you just, that you, those are searing events in the life of a child you know they're going to remember that they're going to remember who who did that um it's just crazy texas i you know texas looks like it might be a battleground this election but in 10 15 years it's going to be blue and the, the, no republican will ever win a presidential election again so th- we've got either change and and I hope we don't spend a whole lot of time fighting back against the people who want to take us further down the direction that Donald Trump took us, just being more courteous on Twitter. You know. Um,
0: you know. I know you don't like to speculate on what McCain would say about <clears throat> something that's happening after his death. After his death, um, and Kevin, my husband, um, said that all during the hearings today. Uh, People on both sides were bringing up McCain's name as, you know, working together with everyone and we don't want to be divisive. What do you think about uh, the procedure that they're deciding to vote on?
1: Okay, I personally don't have a problem with the nominee. I, I do have a problem with how it was done and not that they violated any rule and it doesn't qualify as court packing. Uh, they are the rules as they exist. It's per- perfectly constitutional what Republicans are doing. But four years ago, we denied President Obama his choice of a nominee because we controlled the Senate. And we didn't make the argument that, sorry, we control the Senate, we're not gonna, we're not gonna confirm your nominee. We said, we're not gonna give your nominee a vote because it's within the election year and we should let the people decide. We made that argument a thousand times. John McCain made that argument at the behest of leaders. Lindsey Graham made that argument at the behest of leaders. Uh, every Republican I know in the Senate made that argument. Okay. And then to reverse course like that, to me, it just, again, undermines any bonds, just weakens any remaining bonds, across cross aisle bonds, any people. You've got to be good for your word in politics. If you're not Good to your word. The place just comes apart, and uh, and so the the way it's been done is what I'm opposed to, and why I would would wouldn't have supported this nominee. Not because I have a problem with six conservative justices on the Supreme Court. I don't.
0: Mm. So I want to go to the um, close of the book, and for all of you uh, that are listening, um, I, I left out. One chapter after another that would stand alone as a incredible uh, kind of history. And um, wh- what I've described the book as is inspiring. That, you know, I know Marx, Mark uh, Salter to be a pessimist, and, and McCain, who was an optimist, who, despite the corruption and the cruelty that was around, Really understood um, the possibility and that you would keep working to it. So, in the the closing line uh, of your last book, Mm -hmm. uh, which you referred to, um, is what an ingrate, this is quoting um, John McCain, what an ingrate I would be to curse the fate that concludes the blessed life I've led. I hope those that mourn my passing and even those who don't will celebrate as I celebrate a happy life lived in imperfect service to a country made of ideals, whose continued success is the hope of the world. And I wish all of you great adventures, good company, and lives as lucky as mine." How how did this notion of his mark inform you and him about what his funeral should be?
1: Well, he, I titled the book Luckiest Man for a reason. He really did view himself as the luckiest man, not only for surviving you know, a half a dozen very close brushes with death, but you know to overcome what he recognized were his own imperfections, his flaws and failings, his temper, his impetuosity, uh, to become, as he used to put it, fifth from the bottom of my class at the Naval Academy and the Republican nominee for president. Unbelievable. And he, to the, his very last moments on earth, he stressed over and over again, how fortunate he believed he was and how he should be viewed that way because his greatest fortune he, he, was, he felt being able to work in service to this country because he really did believe in this country's ideals. And I think what prison taught him and what, what his affinity and association with uh, you know, freedom movements the world over taught him that the most marvelous of human achievements is to not lose hope when experiences touch taught you hope is for suckers. And he never did, and that was the most valuable lesson he taught me. He taught me to believe in hope when I have a somewhat grimmer, darker expectation of humanity and uh um it it really was the um the source of his strength and his um uh, i don't know his um his great impact, i think on his country
0: and he made a decision. With you about who would speak at the funeral,
1: he did. Yeah, he asked. Uh, he wanted to send a sign that uh, that that far more unites us and divides us. So he asked the two men who denied him the presidency, uh, Barack Obama and George Bush, to speak on his behalf at his funeral. And uh, that was a a, a, a a classic McCain gesture. You know, if you ever want to have your faith in what restored and what politics. Can be go go back and look again at his concession speech in two thousand and eight, and and his the speech he gave at the Al, Al Smith dinner, uh, a few weeks before that concession speech. They really are uh, restorative, I think. They really, yeah. Are,
0: yeah. And I think for the world, the funeral in the midst of so much cynicism yeah. reminded all of us that that was yeah. possible.
1: Yes, it did for um, a moment. For a moment, but well, it was yeah, it was quite a moment.
0: It was, it was quite a moment. And, you know, I, we were here in Maine yeah. uh, when you got that call Yeah, mm-hmm. and describe getting that call And
1: Well, my, my, uh, I, we, we have a daughter who was in the Peace Corps at the time and she'd come home for a week. Um, we, I'd had, had been shuttling back and forth to Arizona for mo- most of that year, the, his last year. Um, and, um, Cindy called me a a week or so before and said uh, he was entering kind of the final stages of his disease, and uh, I should be ready to come back at a moment's notice. Um, And so I I, I got a call from her again saying, come back. And I waited overnight because my daughter was here, and, um, and I caught a flight in the morning. And I flew the whole way thinking, oh, my God, I'm not going to get there in time. And I I didn't even get Wi-Fi on the plane. But when I landed, I got a text from Rick Davis, who was there and had been calling me, um, saying he's he's still hanging in there. it It takes a few hours to get the rental car and. I think they had somebody pick me up. Uh, but it's about a two-hour drive to their place in northern Arizona. But I did get there in time, and I was I was there to pass. Otherwise, I would have been felt guilty for a long time. But I, I, it was a lovely, peaceful departure from this earth just the way he would have wanted it. Um, you know, we, he was in a bed on the deck of his home looking at the place he loved, and, um, you know, the Blackhawks that he sort of had a fascination for. One of them flew over him, and... he he died a moment later. Um, It was uh, very, very nice. Uh, We drove to the top of the hill an hour or so later with uh, the purse and there were crowds of people all along the County roads and the interstate and in the city of Phoenix, all around the blocks to the funeral home and then to the uh, uh, state Capitol where he laid in state. And there were long lines and the U S Capitol where he laid in state after that. And there was, just the outpouring of admiration and affection for the guy was extremely heartening. And to this day, I even summon an image of it. It makes me pretty weepy, but, uh, it was, um, you know, it was a, a great moment for a great man. And, uh, mm. I was, I was glad I, I got to witness it.
0: Mark, I'd like to close with one of the most exquisite chapters, um, in the book, uh, closes with, um, I'll have you set up uh, the story. Okay. It's the end of the campaign. Yeah. Um, John McCain, as you said, was a voracious reader and a Hemingway fan, yeah. and he pulls out of his briefcase yeah. this sort of torn up copy right. of The Snows of Kilimanjaro yeah. and proceeds to read the whole thing. And yeah. it's not a short story. It's more it's, of a, a long novella. Long.
1: Yeah, it's a long one.
0: But he read it for an hour. Yeah, And um, th- this ending to the paragraph, uh, to the chapter, I think, you know, reminded me of John McCain, the man reminds me, Mark, of your incredible talent and ability uh, to tell the stories. And I think reminds us of what's possible so right, right. if you would read that i'm gonna have uh, you go close to the mic okay well, i
1: think i should back it up to just to read the little. okay so the, the the story for those of you who haven't read it uh begins with a little almost like a national geographic paragraph or something but uh a little a little a um, little comment on the on the uh kilimanjaro itself kilimanjaro so this is a uh listen to this this is mccain uh Listen to this, he ordered, and he began to read the story. This is how the story begins. Kilimanjaro is a snow-covered mountain, 19,710 feet high, and is said to be the highest mountain in Africa. Its western summit is called the Masai Nagaji Nage, the House of God. Close to the western summit, there is the dried and frozen carcass of a leopard. No one has explained what the leopard was seeking at that altitude. He read the entire story aloud. It's long for a short story, more than 9,000 words. It took him over an hour to read and he was hoarse when he finished. For those who've never had the pleasure, it's the story of a writer on African safari dying of a gangrene, aware of his predicament and reflecting back on his life's choices. I had always considered it a story of heartbreaking regret, an odd choice or maybe not for a candidate in a presidential election. But I don't think McCain's impulse to read it had a thing to do with his present circumstances. I don't think for him, the story was about regret. It was a story of aspiration. At the end of it, in his delirium as death approaches, the protagonist believes he is aloft in an airplane flying through a violent storm until he sees the square top of Kilimanjaro looking as wide as all the world, great high and unbelievably white in the sun. McCain struggled to finish the story's last paragraphs as his small audience, frozen and silent, shot furtive glances at each other. He had read the story 100 times by his account, and on the 101st time, he cried at the end. It's beautiful, he explained, beautiful. What was the leopard seeking at that altitude? To leave leave below the regrets of a life, to make up for its failings, to ascend by courage and good work and sacrifice until your conscience was quiet and appreciation of the steep climb. What was the leopard seeking at that altitude? Its best self, its honor.
0: Well, congratulations, Ah, uh, my friend. Um, Your book brings enormous honor uh, to John McCain, and I know that would matter to you. So we've been talking with Mark Salter, the luckiest man, life with John McCain. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.